Oh, hi. We are back. It's crazy to think we're three episodes into Down to Brown. The only other thing I've done with this much dedication is stand in line for cinnamon rolls at a local bakery. All topics are special to me, but this week's especially. This is not a light one. Family trauma and healing. Actually, talking about this with my friend who I'm about to introduce is what made me really ask the question, what public spaces are out there for us brown women to process these types of uncomfortable, taboo, but critical topics? I do have to say, given the two terms in here, family and trauma, I owe you a heads up on two things. This is an episode that, you guessed it, we're going to talk a lot about family and how that has sort of rooted these experiences for us. And I also want to provide a trigger warning because we will be talking about trauma that results from sexual assault and violence and domestic conversations. So I respect whatever decision you make around here. But for that reason, I'm really grateful I'm doing this with my dear, dear friend, Shruti Parat. Shruti is one of those people like you wish you almost didn't know because she's such an inspiration that you question your own life direction. What makes her perfect for this conversation is, though, her humility and intelligence to challenge herself and those around her, as well as her openness to vulnerability to get better and better. I know it's a weird topic to get excited about, but I am because this was and is part of my Brown experience, and I'm sure I'm not alone. All right, without further ado, welcome, Shruti. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Oh, you were the first person I thought of, girl, for this topic, <laughs> especially after our brunch uh, in the mission that day. Do you remember? That fateful brunch. Yes, we, we basically had our own therapy session. <laughs> of so. course. <laughs> I yes. feel like a lot of our conversations are my therapy, by the way. I don't know if you know that you're... Oh, <laughs> that's so flattering. Well, I'm really grateful that you created this space to kind of take that experience to others too because because we had a lot of deep thoughts that day yeah I hope so so I mean let's get right into it because I know there's a shit ton to talk about the word trauma let's talk about that Hmm. when did you first start becoming aware of this concept for sure so I think um In my early 20s to mid 20s, I was filled with rage and stress. um, And I was feeling that in my body. And a lot of it was driven by um, marriage pressure that was being put on me by my family and just just general anxiety. But I would say I didn't know what those feelings were um, until I got into a car accident when I was 25. And that was super scarring experience. You know, the textbook definition of trauma, like I I knew that a, a physical accident where I was injured, that was trauma. But when I went to therapy after that, I realized that there were a lot of other ways trauma was manifesting. And it's not just about physical wounds, but it's also those mental wounds that run really deep and, and actually... I think that the experience of going for a really obvious trauma helped reveal some of those more subtle but no less impactful traumas. That makes total sense. And I'm, I'm really sorry that happened to you, that car accident. It, it sounds awful. And 
you're right. Um, when I was doing, you know, kind of a initial, like I was writing down the questions we were going to talk about and I started, I was like, oh, maybe I should just look up like, what is trauma? And I looked up on the dictionary. Okay. Well, I asked Alexa and she said, <laughs> similarly, trauma is defined by a body wound or shock. Um, but it's sort of interesting that we have never made that connection together, even though in our society, we're learning more and more that our psychology is so connected to our physical ability to live healthily and prosperously you know um, a lot of syndromes now like you realize like oh it's stress literally stress is affecting my digestion stress is affecting my sexual ability to perform Mm -hmm. you know stress is affecting pregnancy but it's invisible so sometimes we don't really also give it importance because we think or don't even realize what's happening there yeah oh oh definitely and I think you know the dialogue is moving forward but um, trauma is like now being taught in school, you know, trauma-informed care, trauma-informed teaching. I, I think we're progressing in our understanding of it, but there's still a lot to learn, especially for, for brown girls. Oh, absolutely. I think, and it's sort of interesting because in our cultures, we have a tendency to sort of gaslight trauma too. Even calling it trauma, it took, at least I'll speak for myself, it took me a long time to admit it's okay to use the word trauma to describe something because it felt like I was being dramatic. Trauma can be not getting picked in PE class. A trauma can be violence. It, it could be as small mm. and drastic, right? So, and there's a lot in that spectrum that I haven't mentioned. So it's, it's really, you know, sometimes um, it's a bummer to me to realize how much we have spent lives not acknowledging that, you know, to your point and like having, yeah. having an experience that helped you realize it's not, I'm not at all glad that you went through an accident, but it's sort of interesting. Those experiences happen and kind of give you light into something much larger. Yeah, absolutely. So when did you first learn about this? Now, if you add the prefix to it, generational or cyclical trauma, Mm. Yeah, that was a very interesting topic to me. I mean, I think my therapist mentioned it once because so many of the themes that I kept bringing up in our sessions were like, well, my my grandma was traumatized because she didn't have a mom. And then she really like she sent her daughter away to the U.S. And then my mom wants us to be really close. And, And, you know, there's just all of this natural description of sort of the generational burden that was passed down and it's passed down so actively. I mean, like every phone call, every lecture, every um, moment that you're taught how to be a young woman, you know, those lessons are, are drilled into your mind. And so I think what I realized, especially after reading this one book called the body keeps the score Mm. um, is that the the body actually retains even past generations trauma. So for example, my grandma's deep, deep pain of not having her mother and and sort of not having all these opportunities as, as a young woman, she never, she held that and she passed it along. Um, And that actually is not just psychological. It's also genetic, which really struck me in The Body Keeps the Score. Um, Like, for example, in the Irish potato famine, um, 
great, great grandchildren of people who survived the famine were still showing genetic effects of like more oh, yeah. weight gain. Um, and, you know, all of these all of these effects that they had no control over. And so I, I think it just I started really looking into it because I realized so much of my own um, angst was yeah. tied up in what the prior generations experienced and they just had never resolved it. Um, so that that is kind of how I started thinking about intergenerational trauma. Absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head. Like I even like learning about there's a lot of studies around the Holocaust and how that has had impacts mm-hmm. on the future generation, similar to the ones you cited. And I, th- I think it's it's really, again, a missed opportunity when we realize, like, of course, I'm not comparing the two. But when traumatic things happen, it, it does get internalized and. You know, sometimes I think about like one thing that has been passed along in our family is snapping, like the concept of, you know, you get irritated and you kind of mm. give into it. And it's not something I'm proud of. I work on it very actively to not be a snapping partner to now, you know, my fiance or even with my friends. And it mm. but it's a physical reaction. If you think about it, the irritation, it's almost like you burst and it's, it's mm-hmm. a lack of moderation of that. And so to me, it's actually like it, it was a very small way of realizing how these behaviors that you start to see and not really question can really d- become a physical part of your behavior. Um, so mm. I, I don't know. It's, it's a small example, but I, I think that's kind of where. But I've I've really struggled to sometimes understand, like to your point on your the women in your family you know, my dad sort of created this similar experience where he was very independent and I'm really proud of him for, you know, being able to study really hard, pull out of himself out of poverty and come to the States and build this life successfully, but Mm -hmm. also be away from his parents and his family and starting over in a country. At times I started Mm -hmm. to feel like, is he trying to recreate this for me without knowing? Because when they moved and I was 17, I was, I felt this is traumatic. Like my family has left me yeah. and it's not because they abandoned me. They gave me every resource that I possibly could need, but I missed the intimacy of my family. And when I would say that to my dad, he used to get slightly defensive about, you know, this is your path to independence. This is normal it's not a big deal. Like he, he struggles even to this day. Like when my sister now is going through her own journey of missing her family, he's like, it's, but it's not a big deal. I don't get it guys. I didn't do anything super dramatic to you all. And it's, I I get it. You know, he is not able to see it because he himself has had this. So I know he doesn't want exactly. And I know he's not like, yeah, I went through it. Suckers. Like you do it too. It's really subconscious. So yeah, it's all um, he knows. It, it really like has become as a result sort of an isolating experience to me because you're like, well, that person won't validate me. Which, yeah. Uh, you know, I really struggle with sometimes how in our families we casually dismiss really fucked up things that happen and we're supposed to just kind of move along and complain about our coffees and how our bosses and giving us assignments like it just feels sort of odd. Like we go through assault, violence, religious conflicts. Like there's different aspects of taste and how that has played a part in our lives. And it, at the same time, like then we're sitting and talking about how, you know, our 30th birthdays got canceled this year. You know, you and I, we talked about that, but part of me felt like 
am I even allowed to complain? Because there's real shit that also happens. Yeah. Well, that's so interesting that you, you know, it's kind of shocking that our parents unknowingly just are replicating what they experienced. It's like, don't you want your kids to be more free and like happier? Um, But I think, I think it's just a lack of maybe imagination or even awareness that it doesn't have to be that way. You know, like we don't always have to feel guilty when we do something that our parents don't want us to do, but that is so deeply ingrained and our parents never thought anything otherwise. And so I think actually like for me at least realizing that, I mean, I was so angry at that for a long time, but when I realized that like they just don't, have the tools and they they're carrying this pain in them and don't even realize i mean that made me feel more a sense of forgiveness actually and it helped me resolve a lot of my anger that they were trying to you know for example get me married before i was ready and i was so enraged but then when i realized you know my that's what happened to my grandma and then that's what happened to my mom they literally don't know Mm -hmm. better they don't know different um and you know i i think I was able to let go of some of that resentment when I, when I realized that that was honestly kind of sad. I really admire you for having that bigness in you to acknowledge that because I think that is one of the hardest things and conclusions to come to. It took me a really long time to realize no one is doing this on purpose. They're just sort of almost like they're a product and victim of their upbringing Mm -hmm. and they just want the best, but if they also didn't grow up, like we're rather lucky in a way. We, there are a lot of shitty things happening mm-hmm. right now where I'm like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, I wish I was the future generation, but you know, there are other things like an importance and at least acknowledgement that mental health is important. Going to therapy, it's so common. Even just a generation ago, you would shy away from saying, I'm going to therapy. But You know, one thing that I actually, um, my therapist did teach me is that also it can create a lot of conflict when one person in the group starts to sort of develop and individuate differently and maybe more than the average of the group that they're a part of. And usually this is families where people who start to work on themselves to introspect, go to therapy and start to break Mm. down some of these cycles suddenly it seems really different to the family and they can at times even like put you down or make fun of you for it right like oh that person like oh we got it you went to therapy like cool and it sort of gaslights you in a different way um and it really begs the question of then do I need to be ex by the very people who you know I've learned some of this trauma from is this are these the people who are going to also accept when I heal Mm. Oh, that's heavy. Yeah, it's heavy. And I think that's why it has uh, become such a long term journey for us. Um, You know, and I think this is a really this is really where I'm curious. You know, where are examples for you that you've seen your inherited trauma in action? Hmm. I think it's guilt. (laughs) It's the, the guilt and shame it's just so it runs so deep. Um, so I think there are a few areas specifically. I mean, one of them has definitely been dating and sexuality, you know, and just knowing all of those expectations, 
that are placed on me and knowing that whatever I was doing at that age was disappointing my family, um, that just produced a lot of cognitive dissonance. It was like I was literally trying to hold two different worlds separately yeah. in my body, you know, like I was, it was like I was being deceptive sometimes that wasn't natural to me, but I, I felt like I had to be to maintain those two worlds. And I don't know that, that sense of disconnect, I was just in a bad place. And I think, um, so yeah, for me, it's funny because guilt and shame, like I would say my, my family probably thinks those are healthy yeah. emotions. You know what I mean? Like they would actually think that, Hey, you know, when you feel guilty, that means, um, that you're thinking about what your family would think. And that's good. Um, and shame is something that protects you from like bringing dishonor to the family. You know, if, if what if someone finds out that you did, you know, that you went to this party or you drank alcohol or what, you know, those are, those are things that if I feel shame, it's going to control my behavior. Absolutely. And so I think like in those ways, it's actually very productive for the society to keep, you know, to keep people controlled because it's so powerful. Um, so anyways, and, and I think, you know, obviously religion plays into this too. There's so much, um, I mean, there's so many rules with religion and to be um, a good Hindu, for example, you know, that might mean something to me, but I think in back in the old days, that really meant adhering to rules and adhering to social norms. Um, so yeah, I really think that guilt and shame is, is a legacy that I've been trying to shed more. Um, and just grow more confident. What you're getting at, I, I connect to so much. And I think a lot of people, whether you're Indian or not, this manifests in many ways in certain cult, like cultures or religions really embodied, like Catholic guilt, right? Like you have that concept. And I remember watching it, like, mm-hmm. sure, like a joke about it. And I was like, oh my God, I, like, I feel so seen. Um, and it really does <laughs> play a part in keeping you tethered to a culture, but then you're being tethered in a world that's very different from you. And the dating piece Mm. is very, you know, I mean, I can't uh, relate to that enough because it made me sometimes question when I was on date sometimes, whether the person was brown or not, how am I showing up for this person too? Because there's, if I haven't figured out this conflict I have of what, what is my point in this interaction here going on a date, you know, what is my intention here? because it was so influenced by my parents pressure Mm -hmm. and how it should be. Mm -hmm. But then I also couldn't turn around and talk to my parents about it, Uh. which I mean, my, 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 like we had like my dad and I had like the biggest fight, one of the biggest fights we had, like maybe like two or three that I will always remember in my lifetime. One of them was, um, Mm -hmm. when I went to visit and it just started off as an innocent question. Um, but he was like, you know, I've been watching you date, and where is it? Like, where is he? Like, I don't see it. Like, we need to start talking seriously about your marriage prospects and your arranged marriage. And I was 25 years old. I don't know. It can be really tough because it's something that you sort of are expected to just know. And you really can't talk about with your parents, um, which is such a missed opportunity. Mm, yeah, I, I it's actually so interesting because it just made me think about for the first time I'm thinking about how. Like we are replicating our own family's secret keeping yeah. because <laughs> it is so <laughs> like, oh my gosh, mind blown. <laughs> but it, it, because like we can't actually 
afford to be fully open about our world because it will lead to this judgment and this conflict. Um, but like the conflict is necessary if we, we are going to be our full selves with our family. And so at least for me, like, I just, there, one of my coping mechanisms was just hiding parts of myself for yeah. a long time. And I think that is part of trauma because it festers, you know, like you don't deal with the angst and the pain and, and the resentment that you feel towards your family. You just kind of compartmentalize and try to like tuck it somewhere deep inside. And I think that like secrets are really, really toxic. Wow, um, what an inception moment right there, by the way. I didn't realize like this whole time we were like falling trapped in the same thing. And yeah, I think it's sort of interesting. What you touched on earlier, you know, bringing it back, actually, this sort of creates a lot of a space for compassion, I think. And again, going back to that forgiveness, we feel, um, it, you know, when you realize like this, this might be something that we don't even realize that we've started to emulate too. And it makes me wonder mm. then like, what are the reasons and motivations for my own parents or family to want to keep their own secrets? And if sometimes it does feel like there are certain, certain like twists you hear randomly in your life where at like the age of 24, you find out this deep secret about your family and you're like, wait a second, oh. if I had known this, yes. I could have made sense of my life so differently. Yes. Right? Absolutely. I was going to say, I think that is actually goes back to the part about individuation and how, you know, in South Asian culture, I don't think there's a place for people who are adults, but not married, yeah. you know, like that we're either children or you're married and you're an adult. And so this weird intermediate time, I think part of what's made it so rocky <laughs> is the fact that we're learning things about our families at a very late stage, you know, like after we've developed and as we're trying to become independent and make sense of ourselves in the world. And so I just feel like what you said about, you know, the age of 24, 20, I mean, those are, that's the age when finally we're considered old enough or mature enough to know, you know, this auntie actually got divorced mm -hmm. and you're like, why couldn't I have known that when I was 15 instead of asking awkward questions and getting shushed, you know, like, couldn't that have helped me make more of more of a concept of like what the real world was like? Um, and it, yeah, I just think that like the way they keep secrets until we're older has really, I don't know, stunted at least my ability to just know the truth about the family. I will say that I come from a place of frustration when families expect social rituals to make you an adult, but I feel like we're in a generation or at least like we're what we're exposed to culturally is more about it's the you are already an adult, but you're working on yourself to become a better version of yourself. And that doesn't happen by getting married or by getting a job. Right. right. So like it it can sometimes like I, I really think of I love this uh, woman Meg Jay who a lot of people know from her TED talk about you know 20 or 30 being the new 20 um, and in her book Defining Decade she talks about how the best time to work on your marriage is before you get married and when I read mm -hmm. that I was like not only true for you know in the context of dating and marriage but also 
a lot of these roles like parenting like I think the best time to become a parent is before you become a parent and whether that's Mm. you alone it doesn't mean you have to be with a partner when you're single I think that's a good practice when you you are in a relationship and you're practicing but all of that I feel like I feel like I'm doing my duty by not having kids in a rush and thinking more about Okay, even if it takes me a few years longer for when it's socially acceptable, that I will be a more self-realized mom so I don't pass on things to my child. Oh, man, that word duty also is just so ingrained. (laughs) So uh, triggering. (laughs) Because anything you say as duty is, okay, then I can't argue with that. I mean, it, it does stem from a little bit I know different religions have this, but you know, when we think about in Hinduism, the Bhagavad Gita and like how that really glamorized duty. And of course it made sense in that context. Um, I, I don't, my point isn't to get into whether the Bhagavad Gita is, you know, accurate or not, but it's <laughs> sure. more about right, that's, right. Where, like, that's where I first realized like the concept of duty is so important. I even struggled with, even to this day, my dad and mom don't understand my resistance to the story of the Ramayana because we talk about duty. And in the part of the story that people stop at is when Rama and Sita, this couple that gets separated, oh they get reunited, right? And you're like, wow, like, and then he right. becomes king. This is amazing. But the story continues. And he ends up like feeling like the most of his uh, kingdom thinks that she actually did hook up with Ravana and then he's like I don't know if this is good you know model like values to be a show to my people and so he decides to have his brother leave a pregnant wife in the middle of a forest oh, and leave her yeah, me. And she's like totally pure she like went in a fire to prove like hey I'm pure look but you know and the reason I bring this up again is to say like in the name of duty sometimes sort of some strange things get dismissed dude that's a yes yes i'm so glad the ramayana came up actually because i really struggled with the same story because you grow up as a kid and you love it yeah. and you're like hanuman's awesome and rama's a hero and sita's the best and then <laughs> you're like wait why did it end like this and um i think it just, it's interesting because as I got older and I even took like religious studies classes and I was really trying to figure this out. Um, the best explanation I heard um, from, you know, a Hinduism scholar was like, Shruti, the whole point is that it's a tragedy. Oh. Like that is why it has captured the imagination of India. It's because it's sad. And I was like, Whoa. But do you think people like, really actually, see that? I feel like they see the part where they're like, oh, the duty is sacrifice. But I think that's what I mean. Like, I think that is what makes the story great is like you are you are putting away yourself and like your needs and all of that stuff in for some greater good, which in the Ramayana case is very abstract for me. But, you know, I think like I think that's how they reteach trauma i'm not even kidding like i think genuinely they're like telling little kids you know like this is rama does this and that means like this is a pattern for your own life to follow i mean he's literally called the perfect man um in elementary school you know hinduism classes and so i I, it's like a such a vehicle yeah no even like in the plaques at temple you're like oh the perfect human being and that's kind of where I was like wait but I 
I feel like now knowing the second half of the actual story. <laughs> oh God. It's sort of like finding out like Pocahontas actually dies in real life. And you're like, wait, what the fuck? Like <laughs> we probably should have been told that part um, to have a complete story. So when you find that, I, I actually, I guess maybe I'm just a cynic here, but I feel like I get a lot of defensiveness from people being like, no, but he is because he had to listen. He, he cared more about his people. So sometimes my concern is that are people realizing that it is the tragedy aspect is what we should learn from, not from the fact that the glamorization of his sacrifice. Yeah. Well, and I think that that recipe just leads to yes. lifelong resentment, you know, like when people really do feel like they're not supposed to articulate their needs at all. And I mean, I think for me, at least, that is exactly why I was so disillusioned with relationships and marriage, um, because I was like, absolutely, what is in it for me? Like, this is just... This is just a whole bunch of obligation. It's more expectations. Um, it's just going to meet. I mean, it was just a negative view of of what I was told about marriage. I was like, where's the joy? Like, where's the romance? I, I just didn't hear that. It was always about duty. Um, and I think, you know, this is doing us women like an incredible disservice. You know, I, I think like, the number of Indian girls that um, have told me that their first time losing their virginity was extraordinarily painful and just honestly traumatic, it's its crazy. Absolutely. Like, it just makes me so sad um, that, you know, even that kind of the way that your body shuts down and, and responds to shame is so that you, you can never enjoy pleasure. It's just, it's a, it's just so mean. I don't know. I don't know how the words to describe how angry that makes me. That makes total sense. And it goes back to that piece that we were talking about of how can these mental wounds not be manifested in physical pain? It is something that, again, I don't think only our society goes through. Um, I, I thought it was really interesting watching that Netflix series Unorthodox because that is something that they demonstrated in there too of this conservative Jewish community and how that impact impacted one woman and it she carried a lot of shame because everyone in the family was involved when she wasn't able to perform and so if you are carrying those feelings of guilt shame instead of actually acknowledging what the problem is that hey I could have been traumatized and it's not because maybe even this person it's the trauma I'm carrying and the oppression I'm carrying from other things from being raised what I've seen um then how yeah. are you supposed to heal it you just actually end up being in a position where you sit oh something's wrong with me yeah that oh that's the saddest part that I think it really impacts girls and women in our self-actualization um and you know, it's not, it, you're right. It's not just, it's not just me. It's not just you. It's not just our culture. Um, but I do think there are patterns, right? Like um, I know Esther Perel, my favorite relationship therapist, podcast person, um, she has a podcast with an Indian couple where, you know, vaginismus comes up and she says, you know, actually, um, opp oppression can literally shut down your body's ability to enjoy sex. Um, and, you know, I think, I think it does help to realize it's not just us. I mean, there's a podcast like this, for example, 
I'm trying to think of if I had heard this when I was like 23, how much better I would have felt because I was, I was experiencing these things and not really having the language to explain why it felt so wrong. Absolutely. And I think this is where sometimes these things happen and you don't give yourself almost the credibility that you deserve. And I, I mean, just between you and yourself, that voice in your head might discredit what you're feeling because maybe in our families we've grown up with, hey, that's a sign of weakness or it's not a big deal. They're real problems. People are starving in Africa. Like you can't complain about having this. Um, and so, you know, the reason I bring this up is because um, for me, one of the huge unfortunate lessons for me was when I was 12, I was assaulted in an elevator and I didn't realize how much I did not process it for decades. Like that was something that happened. I was too young to even honestly understand because we didn't really talk about our body or what it meant to be touched in an inappropriate way and what parts were private. And so I, it took a long time for me to even realize, oh shit, that's what happened to me. And then it, I honestly over time convinced myself it wasn't a big deal because it's not like I was raped. It wasn't, um, it did nothing really bad, bad happened, which is terrible looking back. And I'm actually just like as a friend to myself, I'm like, oh, my God, you poor thing. Like, why didn't you take more time? Yeah. But I didn't. And so here I am at the age of 30 reading Chanel Miller's book, Know My Name, and I get incredibly triggered. Oh, and I'm for talking sure. to my therapist like, shit, I, I think I did not give myself these this importance to process everything that happened. Like. I'm still able to tell her at this age, like the sound my flip flops made when I was running away, um, the feeling of his hand trying to grab mine to pull me back or the sound of my sister's voice downstairs, which was helping me guide my, you know, just mobilize me to run away from him. And I think there, and again, like I'm not sharing this to say like, <laughs> like my dramatic past. Of course. Honestly, like I just wish like a, I had, been more like it, that resource existed to share these things with your family. And then also I learned that there were a few others in my family who have experienced this. And so none of us talked about it. So can you imagine this culture that like is so ripe to heal together, but we also aren't talking about it for our own reasons and what type of cycle that sets yeah. for us? Oh, I'm so sorry. And it's just so wrong that that happened to you and happens to other girls at that age at such a formative age it's just it's just horrible and i think that i mean thank you for sharing your story because i think it is really hard not to repress those memories um because they're humiliating also you know and like we don't even have a language to talk about our bodies or sex with our families and so how are we supposed to discuss assault. Um, and I, I remember having like a very, very uncomfortable and sort of rapey sexual experience mm -hmm. with um, someone on a first date. And he was Indian and he was, you know, someone that on paper my parents would have approved of, but he left me feeling so disgusted and disgusting, you know, and just how he approached me on a first date. And I was like, I just felt so icky. And it's one of those things that like, I can't share that with anybody in my family afterwards to say why I feel kind of negative about marriage, you know, like, 
I, it's just like one of those, uh, one more thing that you kind of just keep in that separate world. Um, and it's honestly something I'm still trying to figure out. I mean, not just, not that stuff necessarily, but like, how do I bring my whole self to my family? Because at some point I've realized like, it's not fully healthy <laughs> to keep it separate, but it's also such a habit now. Like, I don't even know how to break it. And similarly, I'm just so sorry that you went through that. Like that is especially like we go on first dates, obviously, right? Like with full good intention. It, I just can't imagine you coming back from that. And I'm just really sorry. You don't deserve that. And I think it's very also in confusing at times. I don't know if your parents do this, but I feel like rather than talk about the values of the person I should be looking for or dating, I was taught more about they should be Indian. And sometimes you go on these, you know, experiences and you're like, but they were Indian. Like, <laughs> how does that assure you that they're then perfect, right? Like the perfect human being, speaking of. Um, so your point, it's such a missed opportunity because our families, we have so benefited, right? I know we're talking about some of the constructive feedback we have about our families, but also there's this piece of like the way that we're so intimate in our Indian communities can also be really beautiful and has helped us feel this kind of warmth and security and confidence in other aspects, right? So it's kind of just yes. stark when you realize yes. like, okay, you're offering it to me here, but when it comes to this topic... I'm just completely on my own. And, you know, now when I think about it, it's like kind of crazy to me that these like that's how women would be raised. And then they'd be like, go live with this husband, go perform, like have sex, mm -hmm. have kids, like be a lead of the household. Just figure that out. You know, like that is so <laughs> scary to me. Oh, I can't even imagine what that transition is like. And yeah, actually, I mean, to your point, I think part of what makes all of this secret keeping difficult is that it's not something I naturally want to do because I do feel so safe and welcomed at home. You know, it's like there's, there's this relationship between parents and kids and even grandparents and kids where I'm so close to them. Like, like that's part of the complication of all of it. Like, yes, there are negative sort of entanglement issues and codependency and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, there's this incredible support network. There's um, an incredible amount of security. Um, not everyone has unconditional love, but I, I do feel like I, I, ha I was lucky enough to have know what that feels like. And so I think that's why it was just so alien as a emerging adult to like not be able to tap into that for all of these adult experiences where I normally would want their guidance. That really hits, you know, hard for me. I, I completely agree. And I think one of the things that I also, you mentioned was about bringing your full self to your family and Again, who knows? Like, I'm not saying this is life according to Lahari, but, you know, for me, what has worked is starting to sort of in that light of forgiveness and compassion for my parents also let go that if I'm a different person and they don't necessarily accept that, is that more about my desire, you know, for a childish validation? Like, do I need them to accept 
mm-hmm. who I am fully like um, to share. Right. So like now I've sort of tried to shift because I didn't realize how much I actually did. You know, and it's natural. Kids want the approval of their parents and you want to be validated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, like they support you. So it's not like unique to me, but it, it was sort of like I realized like now I'm going to share things. And if they don't agree and even if they're like, don't do that, I'll be like, OK, like I appreciate that moving on um because ultimately like I am the one who has to live with these decisions and um I think for me a really big it didn't change because of this but like it set them in motion was when I did have that argument with my dad about arranged marriage at 25 um I remember it continued and it came out where I finally like just screamed at him I was like you've taken over my whole life and I've done everything you wanted me to. I've done everything the way you wanted me to. I've emulated you where I'm independent. I do take care of myself. I pay for my own shit. I never borrow from you. I, um, everything will be on my own, but then what else? Like, I, I can't do anything else. Like I need you to stop interfering in this one aspect of my life. And he felt really pained and we've, you know, talked about it. He felt really bad, like really, right. Like he felt guilty about like, Oh, did I really just like hijack your life and tell you to take this path? But ultimately I realized like after a while, like, especially the last couple of years, like, um, I don't need my dad. Like I was giving him the importance of his voice, even when he stopped, telling me even if he's not like let go of me there there Mm -hmm. was a part that maybe masochistically I was still like my dad would want me to do this my dad might and I was like what the like I'm a grown woman like I can make decisions (laughs) and actually like as long as I'm okay with it cool yeah that's really mature I I actually totally relate um because I spotted myself doing something really similar where I was kind of it's a cycle of escalation where like, you know, we would we would get into an argument and I would be like, I'm doing my own thing. And my mom would be like, fine, then I'm going to be unhappy. And then I was like, oh, no, but I don't want you to be unhappy. You know, <laughs> I was like, oh, wait, wait a sec. <laughs> and then I would backtrack and I would be like, never mind, never mind. You know, like <laughs> it was just this, like really ridiculous cycle. And actually, my mom is the one who helped me snap out of it a little bit because she was like, Shruti, you are going to make decisions and sometimes I will not be happy. You have to allow me to also experience my emotions while you do your thing. Like, it's okay. We're still going to be family. And I was like, whoa, she's like, maybe she actually is wiser than I give her credit for. And some of this, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, like some of this is self-created, um, anger you know like maybe and I think that kind of leads to the idea that like parents do evolve um and some okay some family members never will and at that stage you're like okay I either have to accept you or you know you're toxic and I have to like divest from the relationship um but I think for people that are close and just maybe stuck in some bad patterns I don't know. I feel like I feel like it is possible to reshape them. It's not inevitable. It's not um I don't think you have to permanently be stuck. I love the optimism of that because I agree. I think there's a part of perhaps any child maybe this is just part of like the developmental journey and the jokes on me, but you know, parents also are people that are on their own paths and they 
mature and a lot of them like especially in our community can be young parents where as a result of not going through a little bit more emphasis on mental health maybe and like examining yourself right that was seen as sort of selfish especially in our communities to take time to just indulge in self-care like you're not going to see your mom be like yeah I'm going to take a bath and just like listen to some jams and so now don't bother me it's like no I'm always available to you knock on my door come when I'm peeing in the bathroom and ask me whatever you need like there are no boundaries right so like they also gave 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 and I I start to wonder sometimes like I'm sure they've been through a phase where they're like you know fuck this I've been giving so much like what's going on and then they go through whatever that experience looks like for them and they eventually individuate from us too right like there's this sort of like I will also accept and maybe we haven't also allowed them to do that part of it um, because Mm. there's that kiddish almost like still like especially because I one of my theories that I've kind of talked to you about is like sometimes it feels like in Indian families if one person goes through an emotion everyone has to shoulder that burden of that emotion sorry so the sharing of emotion sometimes I think it's it's also healthy like I, I love how your mom said it like let me just be unhappy and I'll deal with it and move on right which is really important. Um, like my dad makes this joke, like, you know, sometimes when he's like, oh, like we're talking about how my day went and I'm like, oh, I went to therapy and he's like, oh, great. So blamed it on us, huh? Like, I'm sure you talked a lot about your mom and I and how we fucked you up. And I'm like, okay, I know you're joking, but also like, yeah, at this point, I think I've gotten to a place where I'm like, no, no, it's more about like, yeah, like yeah, this came from maybe something that I've seen you guys do or not do, but it's really up to me now. It's really my choice how I would like to live my life and what I decide to select is helpful and what I need to start to discard. That's so powerful. And I feel like the part, I mean, I feel like this is all going to change again, you know, as we get older. Because 50 comes out. Well, that for sure. I'll be like, are you kidding me? I wasn't old enough at 30 to find. No, Um, I was, no, I was thinking more about like, I don't have kids right now. I'm not married. Like, I wonder how much of this also adjusts and shifts if those responsibilities come up and, you know, I know Michelle Obama is how she has her podcast for women in their 50s and early 60s. And and actually, I remember um, my sister told me she was like, there was this quote where Michelle said, this is the age in 50s and 60s where women fully embrace their own needs again. Um, and I showed that to my mom and my mom was like, yeah, some women experience that. And it's like, Amma, that's you. You can experience that. <laughs> like, we're old enough. Like, you can. And I actually feel like maybe this is the time when they can start doing their own thing again. And we are maybe in a few years going to enter a period of more adult responsibilities where all of the things we just talked about need to be like revisited. But you know, that's okay. That's, that's part of the cycle, right? Exactly. I think like sometimes, and that's the point of like the word cycle is that it happens over and over again. I don't think every time you realize, and it's sort of like when you go through something and then your friend says like, Oh, do this. You're like, Oh my God, I knew this. But for some reason I just like had to relearn it. Yeah. 
I don't know. I found this really interesting because I like even when I was kind of doing some reading about this topic, like before we talked, like I found a really interesting study about, you know, even our collectivist culture of Indian society kind of putting a lot of this emphasis on saving face and honor, shame, like how we should be in our families. And there was this really cool study by University of Melbourne that showed that actually collectivist social cues like provide additional normative information about like what conflict resolutions should be. And often it's actually like don't have conflict for Asians. So it's like (laughs) Asians and Australians showed an equal preference for compromising um, in this study, but Asians showed a much stronger preference for compromising and avoiding. um, Okay. Which I think is so... (laughs) Not surprising. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, could could that underline any more experiences that we've had? also curious on your end like when it comes to conflict right like we've been talking a lot ideally about like as we've grown but like when it comes to conflict like there are certain things we've learned for sure um so how how has that showed up in your life like conflict or conflict avoidance with your family Mm, that's an interesting one I mean I think conflict just feels really high stakes when it happens Mm -hmm. like it happens, but then it just feels like devastatingly dramatic. (laughs) And so like, rather than just like, uh, it's okay. We were blowing off steam. We were having a disagreement. We were having a discussion. Like it's, you know, it just, it just feels really fraught when it happens. Um, I think also like, I remember my grandma told me um, when I was arguing a lot at home at one stage, she was like, you're, you cry too much, like never cry. It's a sign of weakness. And I was like, but it, yes. like, it's just like those kinds of things that happen during conflict, like cause so much stress. And I'm like, you know, it's just a disagreement. And if I have an emotion, it's temporary. Like we're, we're going to be okay. Even if I cry. So, you know, for like what you mentioned, like really stood out for me because it reminded me of this example that I've even seen, like the concept of conflict avoidance and how it actually ended up with me recreating certain experiences and patterns exhibited is um, our family on my dad's side can be very conflict avoidant, but very opinionated if people Mm. start to fall in your graces. Like if someone makes a mistake the concept of like, hey, let's talk about it and like figure it out, give them the benefit of the doubt. Oh, okay, this is what they meant. Cool. It doesn't really exist. It's more like, how could they do that? Why would they do that? Like, and it's sort of this underlying assumption that people just behave perfectly the way you expect and they should just know to behave that way. And if they don't, yeah. then you start to build this really bitter narrative about them. Like they've wronged you and they ultimately, when you tell yourself that repeatedly, you end up kind of mentally distancing yourself from that person and then you cut them off in a kind of disgust. And so that I've seen so many times like in our family and I saw it replicated again by a relative who had a problem with me, didn't talk to me about it. And finally, when I asked, can you just share what's going on? I thought we would come to a conversation where we're like, this is how I felt. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize 
let's, you know, yeah. figure out a way. Um, it felt like that this person had already made the decision in their head that after a year of ruminating over this, that I was just a really bad, inconsiderate person oh. and that they were just, they could not believe in anything I said. Like I felt I was like, come on here. We're saying in this conversation, I was like, I'm speaking, I'm speaking. Um, it, it didn't help. <laughs> like it, it yeah. that person just like kept dismissing it. So what I realized over time is this person carried a lot of anger and like I wasn't even denying. I was like, you're totally right. I just wish you had told me. Mm. And um, then I could have addressed it because I feel stupid. Like I, if I had yeah. known my mistake, I would have fixed it. Um, right. But ultimately, I realized this person has already written me off. Like there's no way like the intention in this conversation was like, I'll share this and then I can heal with Lahari and you know we can continue to have a relationship so right we broke up which typically doesn't happen in Indian families yeah yeah the reason this stood out to me is because come you know a few months later I realized oh my god I actually did exactly this to my best friend and what I realized is that I had modeled a very similar pattern of being conflict avoidant in the name of mm. quote love and then building a case and sort of leaving it at a place where I always wasn't sure if we could repair it. And luckily for me, this friend was incredibly forgiving and loving and yeah. patient and accepted my apology when I realized and now we're great. But it it's sort of eerie, right? I realized like, holy shit, this stuff can creep on you at any point. You have to be vigilant about these patterns that have been modeled to you and you'll have to recognize and break, recognize and re-break over and over because I might not get as lucky next time to have someone as generous and kind to me. No. Yeah. Well, and also just amazing to have a friendship where you know, it's recoverable to right. make make that mistake or, or do something that you regret later and then you can still come back to it. Because um, I think that's where sometimes in Indian families it feels so final, you know, like th- those conflicts are just so high stakes. And so it it just does contrast, you know, that if you have the tools, it, it's possible. Yeah, I wonder if it comes from also like that large families like I forget the term but the joint families that we Mm. would have if you did do something to threaten that you lose not only your belonging to the group but your status you lose your you lose face you lose your Mm. economic resources um and so and in addition to the relationships right so I wonder if like that's kind of where it stems from if you think about like yeah what's been passed down Absolutely. Absolutely. As we think about everything that we've covered, you know, if I had to leave everyone with like, what is Shruti Bharat's point of view on generational and cyclical trauma, given this conversation, what would you say? I would say it's something to be aware of and it's something that we should intentionally interrupt. Um, mm-hmm. And just for future generations, for our own mental health, um, and for our own sense of forgiveness and cohesion with family, you know, it, it's it's important yeah. to know about and to acknowledge and to heal. Um, and maybe it will never be perfect, but I think we do have the power not to repeat all of those patterns. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. I mean, man, um, Shruti, this is an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for going there with me. I couldn't have had this with anyone else. Um, Thank you for creating this space. Yeah, of course. Um, It's my honor. And now I want to kind of go into a different energy, which is our chip chip round. So as you know, (laughs) this chip chip means hush hush in Hindi. And these are some of the questions. They're not always going to be scandalous, but it's more stuff that, you know, just for fun, let's get into some things that like rapid fire that you might not usually share. Um, So first of all, um, I'll start with who is your favorite Indian American celebrity out there right now? And why? Yeah, um, I have lately been watching all of Deepika Mutiala's vlogs and TikToks. Um, I love her brand, Live Tinted, but also I think she's just very real about her Telugu family. And um, she's recently um, come out with like her experience freezing her eggs and going through that at the age of 31. So I don't know. She just feels like a contemporary, someone I'd be friends with. And I, I respect her platform. Love it. Favorite Indian American author? Oh yeah. Um, okay. The the one that I was thinking about was Mistress of Spices by Chitra Banerjee Thivakaruni. Um, it was like this magical realism book, and definitely inspired me because I'm like, oh, I think um, I think magical realism is a great genre for Indian writers. So I thought that was really good. Totally agree. Who would you swap lives with for a day? Oh, uh, maybe Barack Obama. <laughs> I just, I just want to see yes. what he sees, yes, you know, absolutely, and what he knows. I'm very curious. What are those secrets? Um, most yeah. unusual stereotype you've heard about being vegetarian. Oh my goodness. Well, growing up in a very white suburb, um, Honestly, it wasn't even a stereotype, but it was the assumption that I could subsist on hot dog buns. Like, I would, like, show up to parties, like, little kid parties, you know, and they're, like, six or seven years old. And and I'd be like, where's my food? And they'd be like, oh, we have the hot dog bun for you and ketchup. So. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. I'm so sorry. That's so gross. Yeah, like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it was, like, nasty. This week's spotlight is Brown Girl Therapy, which is an Instagram account, and I cannot recommend it more if you don't already know about it. It's a wonderful account that has over 132,000 followers. It's the first and largest mental health community for children of immigrants and promotes therapy and bicultural identity. So I hope you take a look and follow it. 